We are officially in the year of 2024. Now, take a look at the world around us. Not only we're we still very concerned about the war in Ukraine, and on top of all that, now the war in Israel between the nation of Israel and the Hamas actually escalated in a much greater way. Now, here's a question that we should ask at this moment. What is going to happen to the country of Israel? And does that mean the current prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, is able to shoulder all the responsibilities? And believe me or not, on the daily, ba on the daily basis, we have seen the footages and also the pictures of how people in the nation of Israel are actually suffering today. But again, in addition to the nation of Israel, we also need to talk about the tension in Gaza. Again, if you follow the news closely, there's no denying that the citizens are actually suffering much greater way along the border of Gaza. And again, the Hamas today is taking much greater step to manipulate the situation. So that's why the entire international community is raged about the war, not only about the innocent lives, but also they're very concerned about the future of the world and also the future of the world democracy. Well, in this episode, we also need to talk about this correlation between the war in Gaza and also some of the countries in Southeast Asia. Now, too often we tend to ignore the nation in Southeast Asia, not simply because they don't exist. It's really because we don't really hear a lot. But as a matter of fact, when one war continues around the world, that all nations will like to generate much greater noises as well. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Joseph Rachman. Again, if you're familiar with Joseph, again, he's a freelance journalist uncovering Indonesia and other stories from around Southeast Asia. Well, Joe, and welcome back to The Missing Piece, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Will. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back on the show. Well, Joe, I want to get started. Again, initially, when I... Uh, Again, started to connect with you because of the article that you wrote. Or should we say it's a brand new, enlightening article. It's called Gaza is a Burning Topic for Southeast Asia's Domestic Politics. Now, let's get to the question right away. Now, within this article, something you wrote quite stood out and which I want to get you a further explanation. This is what you wrote, and I quote, Roughly 42% of Southeast Asia's population is Muslim. That has played a key role in the region's reaction to the Israel-Hamas war. I guess that's a question everyone, everyone would like to ask you. Why is it so important for the countries in Southeast Asia also to pay attention to the war between Israel and Hamas? What is exactly the relationship between the countries in Southeast Asia and the war between Israel and Hamas? Your thought. Um, yeah, so I suppose that populations in domestic po populations in most countries, citizens in most countries, I think, tend not to pay an enormous amount of attention to foreign affairs most of the time, which is a reasonable position. But you know, the average person in the UK doesn't think about the war in Sudan a great deal. The average person in China might well not think a great deal about. Um, you know, the, the violent protests or, or the, the sort of drug war in Ecuador at the moment. However, because Israel-Palestine is often different because it's a particularly long-running issue, 
And for various reasons, it's always had this ability to capture global attention and mobilize people um, across the world. And for Southeast Asian states, the, this, is, this has been particularly the case for Muslims globally. Mm. Palestine, it, there is a sense of solidarity with Palestinians as fellow Muslims. There is the fact that um, Palestine and in particular Jerusalem is viewed as a holy area in the Islamic faith. So this means that for large swathes of the population um, in Southeast Asia, it's an issue with a great deal of traction. Now, this, this, I mean, this is uh, most obviously in the Muslim majority countries, which is Indonesia, which is the world's largest Muslim democracy, Malaysia, but also in other countries which have significant Muslim minorities. So here we're talking about um, Singapore, um, Thailand, the Philippines, um, in particular. The the other countries, sort of Myanmar. Uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, the, the reaction is less strong simply because there is, you know, much smaller Muslim populations there. So the, the emotional pull of the matter is not quite as powerful in most cases. But Joel, you mentioned that, again, two countries that you mentioned based on what you just answered, that Malaysia and Indonesia are unsurprisingly the most fervent pro-Palestinian voices in the region. Now, again, we've seen the protests actually took place, or as a matter of fact, are actually happening worldwide. I guess it's fair to say the world today, it's heavily divided. When we look at the war in Israel, of course, that we do have the fervent activists or the leaders that support the nation of Israel. For example, the U.S. continue to support Israel by providing finance and, of course, and providing the resources. But meanwhile, we do have another half of the world that actually support the, pa the Palestinians. And given the fact that today we've seen more innocent lives were lost in the nation of Palestine because of the war between Hamas and Israel. Now, how much do you think that we should understand, or how do you, how do we assess that nations such as Malaysia and Indonesia are surprisingly or unsurprisingly the most fervent voices to support Palestinians? What is the assessment behind that? I, I mean, I would say unsurprisingly, both of these countries have a very long history of. Um, of sort of pro-Palestinian um, foreign policy. Um, this is, um, and equally, I mean, they're also not in the Middle East, which, unlike other Muslim-majority countries, such as, say, Saudi Arabia or Jordan or the UAE, these countries often confess a bit more... They've often been had something of a rapprochement with Israel mm. in recent years due to... Um, Basically, it's just a powerful country in the neighborhood. So they've been sort of working towards um, sort of normalizing relations with it under the framework of the Abraham Accords. If they, if this is, Israel is in their neighborhood and they've been trying to deal with that. Um, whereas Malaysia and Indonesia being at a remove, the sort of the kind of geopolitical realities are also slightly at a remove for them as well. So it's easier to take what is for them 
a strongly principled, strongly ideological stance mm. on these matters. Um, so, in case of Malaysia, Malaysia is like a very has a very. If we're going into specifics, um, you know, Malaysia hosts sort of embassies from Palestine, one from Hamas and one from the PLO, sort of splitting the difference. Um, it's been very sort of pro-Palestinian sentiments been a big part of its politics going back to the sort of the 70s and 80s with the rise of Islam as a political force, the rise of um, uh, Dr. Mahathir as their prime minister who used um, Palestine and Malaysia's sort of influence in the Islamic world as a campaign point, um, as well as I think, you know, genuine conviction that terrible injustice was being done to the Palestinians. He used this, he was very outspoken about this and used this to build his profile domestically and internationally. And then we've got the current Prime Minister, um, Anwar Ibrahim. I mean, he entered politics as as an, as an Islamic student activist. Like it's, uh, he's, it's uns, and you know, he was domestically focused, but with that comes, you know, just as part and parcel of it, a strongly pro-Palestinian um, set of sentiments. So we, I think that's very unsurprising that we've seen Malaysia be perhaps the most um, outspoken of any country in its sort of really unequivocal support mm. of not just Palestine, but actually Hamas, which is interesting. So... Um, we, you know, Anwar Ibrahim has been sort of hopping on the phone with Hamas leaders to express support and solidarity to an extent. Um, he's been sort of pushing back very publicly against U.S. pressure to sanction Hamas. Well, actually, frankly, put the U.S. hasn't put an enormous amount of pressure on him to sanction Hamas beyond sort of a pro forma request. They sort of know that it's not going to go anywhere. They know where Malaysian government sentiment stands on this, and indeed a lot of Malaysian public sentiment as well. Similarly, um, in Indonesia, so in Indonesia there's been a groundswell of popular support, pro-Palestinian support, a great sort of outrage at the number of deaths in Gaza. A lot of the news has focused on the Indonesian hospital in Gaza. Um, it was one of the major medical facilities in Gaza. It was funded by um, donations from Indonesian civil society. It had been opened by um, their vice president, Yusuf Kala, in 2015 or 2016, I believe. Um, and so obviously when Israel um, assaulted the hospital, like it did many other medical facilities across the Gaza, and that caused a huge amount of outrage. There have been you know, calls for boycotts of companies associated with Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The government, however, has been a bit quieter. Joko, President Joko Widodo tends to favour a pretty softly, softly approach in his international relations. He's never been one to um, disturb the pot. Um, but on the other hand, um, he has... He has, um, he was used by the Organization of Islamic Nations, or was it Organization for Islamic Cooperation, I think the formal title is, to sort of carry their message um, to Biden on Gaza because he had a meeting with President Biden not long afterwards. Uh, not long after there was a meeting of this Islamic, a group of Islamic nations. And equally, the um, Foreign Minister Retno Masoudi has been very outspoken on the issue and she is 
from people I've spoken to, she is personally um, quite ideologically convinced on this matter. Um, and sort of, so for example, Indonesian foreign, Indonesia does not have formal diplomatic relations with Israel. Previously, Indonesian foreign ministers might still quietly meet with Israeli diplomats at international events, you know, have a meeting on the sidelines on an informal basis. She avoids this sort of thing. Um, the one thing that's also worth noting is that, the, however, the, what is worth noting is that the support that she uh, expresses for the Palestinian people and the support that's expressed by other, lots of other political figures in Indonesia tends to sort of de-emphasize the Islamic aspect as compared to um, Malaysia. So the Indonesian politicians prefer to think of it um, and prefer to frame it in terms of an anti-colonial issue um, as a way to avoid it becoming or in, uh, avoid it becoming or inflaming religious divisions within the country. That's something they're very keen to avoid. Now, there's, you know, you can definitely find all sorts of people in Indonesia who do view this as a religious issue. Mm. But, you know, you've got, I mean, it gets to the point where you've got Nadlatul Ulama, the largest Islamic organization in the country, um, putting out statements about this is an anti-colonial issue. This is a, this should not be used to inflame religious divisions. So that's, that's a, that's an interesting difference between sort of at least the, the sort of official response between Malaysia and Indonesia. Joe, I want to go back to the topic that you touch on regarding Abraham Accords. Now, mm. going back to the article, again, I want to uh, read something you wrote, and I want to get you a better or further explanation, and I quote, In the wake of the Abraham Accords, some Israeli diplomats raised the hope that normalization of relations with Indonesia and Malaysia might follow. I think the fundamental question is, again, under former U.S. President Donald Trump, the Abraham Accords took place. I mean, again, given that the fact that that was one of the significant and one of the, I will say, uh, um, a celebratory uh, international signature, particularly we're looking at the relationship between Israel and also other countries in the Middle East. Going back to the fundamental question, Joe, how much do the countries in Southeast Asia actually can grasp the impact and, will we say, the full picture of Abraham Accords at this moment? I mean, I mean make no mistake, we're still looking at the war between Israel and Hamas, but meanwhile, Besides, you are saying Malaysia or Indonesia are uh, uh, being very much vocal about supporting the Hamas or supporting the uh, Palestinians. But fundamentally, how much do you think the countries such as Malaysia, such as Indonesia, such as Vietnam or even Thailand can understand the full scope of Abraham Accords? What do you say to that? Um a tricky question. I mean, I think that obviously foreign policy specialists in these countries are aware that this was a significant development, that this has been a sort of long-running global conflict and sore spot. Um, and, you know, it has in the past had, and now had 
real potential to disrupt things globally. So most famously in the 70s, um, the oil embargo launched by OPEC in, in response to um, the, the war with Israel. And now with uh, Houthis intercepting uh, shipping in the Red Sea, um, claiming that this is in response to um, Israel's ongoing campaign mm. in Gaza. Um, so I think, you know, there was definitely a sense in the region that this was a big thing. But, I mean, it is, the, the direct impact is not necessarily felt very strongly in much of Southeast Asia. You know, it is quite far away. It's perhaps important as a trade partner, but, you know, unless we see something really massively dramatic like the wars in the 70s and the um or um I would like what we're seeing now I think sort of the 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 sort of popular impact or popular awareness is probably limited and equally you know foreign policy experts might think this is terribly interesting but perhaps not directly related to the these countries direct interests again i would say the exceptions are probably malaysia and indonesia because they have um a sort of ideological and principled stance on this issue and you know i quote you quoted me there but um something i would hasten to add i'm not sure if i caveat in the i think i caveat it in the article as well as this was always kind of a a long shot hope. Uh, the the sentiment was expressed by um, Israel's ambassador to Singapore at the time, Sagi Khani, and yeah, I think he was feeling a bit optimistic. Frankly, I I don't think that it was ever terribly likely that Malaysia was going to change its stance. Mm. Um, there would be like a real domestic political cost to doing that, um, and it's hard to see either um, the sort of group of forces aligned with the Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim, which is mainly the uh, country's minority groups, plus a sliver of sort of more, more moderate and liberal Malays who really can't afford to alienate, and this would be a, a big issue to alienate them on. I can't see that group going for normalisation of relations with Israel in the same way that, say, the UAE has. And equally, I can't see the sort of Malay, Malay nationalist um, or the opposition made up of a coalition of Malay, Malay nationalists and Islamists being willing to normalise relations with Israel. So I think that was always pretty unlikely. Indonesia, I'm told, had some sort of informal internal discussion. Consider it. There were some that, you know, the, there were some that were kind of okay with the idea. The Ministry of Defence, for example, um, Israel is a producer of high-tech, um, mm. it's a very high-tech weapons industry, uh, defence industry, and also some very excellent um, uh, so, sort of software and cyber warfare companies uh, that, and surveillance companies, which I believe the Ministry of Defence was interested in. Equally, sort of Ministry of Trade was like, yes, then we could do business with them. There might be some benefits to this, but... There were other groups who were, you know, very firmly against it within the government, most notably the foreign ministry who says, no, we are, you know, pro-Palestinian sentiment has been sort of, you know, a cornerstone mm. of uh, our foreign policy 
since independence, really, we're not going to tear this up. And, you know, there was a sort of uh, kind of a principal objection there. I, I There was was interesting. Someone who uh, knows the foreign minister or claims to know the foreign minister quite well. Uh, but I, I, I think that they probably do have some insight into mm. um, Minister Retno Masudi's thoughts said that if anything, the Indonesians were becoming a bit more hard, um, or at least she was becoming a little bit more, and the foreign minister was becoming a little bit more hardline on the idea that they really can't recognise Israel. There was a sense that they were one of the few countries holding out against basically saying, we've given up on Palestine, we're going to normalise with Israel, and we're going to accept that we're not going to, we're not, that's, that the Palestinian issue is basically a lost cause for us. The fact, the fact that they were one of the few countries, along with um, sort of Pakistan, Malaysia, more uh, Mauritius, I think maybe, and like um, Saudi Arabia, which may well have been on its way to normalising relations with Israel before uh, before the October seven attacks. There was there was a greater sense that is that. Indonesia really had to stick to it as one of the last parties doing so, mm. um, which was a sort of interesting. Well, it is. Joe, two more questions before letting you go. Now, as we mentioned in the intro, in this year, particularly for the country of Indonesia, it's also crucial because this presidential election is coming up. Now, let's get to the next question. When we look at the war, in Israel, I mean, excuse me, between Israel and Hamas, and also, as I mentioned in the intro, the war in Ukraine, how much does foreign policy actually play into this presidential election for the nation of Indonesia? I mean, again, I believe that most of the time, the voters pay attention to the domestic concerns, economy, uh, gender equality, social issues, education, etc. But again, foreign policy, it's something, I guess the word is inevitable. So you, you are the expert and you are the writer. So help us with better understanding. When it comes to foreign policy, when we look at the international crises today, how much does foreign policy actually play into the card of the voters when they're thinking about the next candidate or when they're thinking about the future of the country, what do you say to them? So, yeah, actually, this is interesting. A little over a week ago, there was a presidential debate uh, between all three candidates, which was theoretically about foreign policy, geopolitics, mm. defense. And I think in their opening statements, if I remember correctly, every single candidate flagged up the importance of Indonesian solidarity with Palestine and this mm. being sort of, you know, something that they promised to continue in their foreign policy and being important to the nation. If you then looked at the rest of the debate, though, it kind of, it really just turned to, Palestine didn't really come up again. It turned to electioneering, which was mainly the two candidates, Anis Baswedan and Ganjal Pranowo, um, attacking uh, the record of the third candidate, uh, Prabowo Subianto, as defence minister, sort of. Um, so actually, the, the, in, 
that was in the foreign policy debate there wasn't actually a huge amount of foreign policy there but there were sort of lots of questions about mm. um you know purchases of jets by the defense ministry and whether these had been appropriately handled um food estates run by the defense ministry and whether these had been a waste of time um you know there, there were a few other stuff but that, that was the stuff that really stood out and that sort of captured public attention i think so i think that you know as i said i do think that palestine is still a live domestic issue in indonesia i think people are still um there may be perhaps some fatigue in the sense that it's not new news anymore but there's still a great deal of sympathy for palestinians still a great deal of outrage about how israel is conducting its campaign in gaza and the level of civilian casualties um but not really become a live campaign issue perhaps because it's quite difficult to insert to or to find much of a difference in the positions of the three candidates they're all you know resolutely pro-palestinian um and not really proposing a massive change to uh indonesia's position on this matter either by um stepping back to the support of palestine which is i think would be incredibly unlikely because i do think they probably would face that voter backlash or you know intensifying support um so that be you know kind of various calls by civil society for indonesia to take stronger mm. action i mean including some really quite unlikely calls for indonesia to somehow send troops as a peacekeeping force which i can tell you the government has no interest in doing that mm. um and there's been no candidate willing to you know make talk up what the or to attack the government for not doing enough and saying what more should be um saying that more should be done so you know there's public sympathy but it's not really become a campaign issue just because there's not much difference between the three candidates mm joe i want to ask you the last question which going back to the article again the title of the article is gaza it's a burning topic for southeast asia's domestic politics a distant war has powerful residents in region often divided by faith now last question very simple your final thoughts do you think today when we look at the war in israel look at the war in between hamas and uh, uh and between hamas and israel and the war in ukraine do you think such international crises it's actually unifying more among the countries in southeast asia or it's actually dividing the countries in southeast asia Particularly, we're looking at this political rhetoric and also this political interest. Your final thoughts? Well, in terms of division versus unity, there's been, you know, a, there was an ASEAN, ASEAN launched a sort of unanimous call for a ceasefire back in October, I believe. Mm. So, you know, there's just on the level of international cooperation, Southeast Asia has presented a, a pretty united front on uh on this matter even mm. if there was nuances and variations in the exact positions the different uh, countries are taking they are all they have all put their name to a resolution calling for a ceasefire um 
But yeah, I mean, in some ways it has been perhaps a rally and, you know, within the countries, it's perhaps been a rallying and unifying point um, for some groups, but it's it also can bring with it divisions because if it's especially... I mean, this is this was when I was talking about why the Indonesian government is so keen to frame it as an anti-colonial issue rather than a religious one. Indonesia has long been very sensitive about the fact that it's a country with significant religious minorities that often form, uh, which in certain provinces will be majority Christian or majority Hindu. They don't want them to become alienated mm. by this sort of rhetoric and. So far, they've avoided this, I think, but there were some small clashes in North Sulawesi, I believe, between um, sort of Islamist groups, which was a very vocally pro-Palestine, and some local evangelical Christian groups, which, um, for sort of slightly obscure theological reasons, um, were quite pro-Israel, and this overlaid onto local tensions between different ethnic groups, I believe. Within Malaysia, similarly, um, I'd say that all parties and representatives of all ethnic groups, Chinese and Indian, as well as Malay, have been very keen to emphasize their support for Palestine and solidarity for Palestine. They don't want this to become, um, I mean, uh, particularly minority groups don't want this to become, they don't want to be marked out, um, I would say, as not holding the right opinion on this issue especially and um but you know the the fact that this is part of the calculation suggests that there is a worry that this could become division so for example uh leaders from the islamist party pass have sometimes mm. criticized the response of uh, political parties more associated with malaysia's minorities accusing them of perhaps being insufficiently supportive of malaysia when they've expressed reservations about certain issues such as um, a Palestine Solidarity Week, which they felt in some cases crossed the line from solidarity with Palestinians to uh, sort of glorification with Hamas. There were some sort of videos of, you know, kids waving about toy guns and kafirs and shouting glory mm -hmm. to Palestine. And there were certain political parties who were very uncomfortable with this. And when they, but when they spoke out about it, and said, you know, of course, we're in solidarity with Palestine, but we don't think this is appropriate for children. There was some criticism um, of them by uh, the Islamist party. So that's 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 interesting. Singapore, um, if we're, as, as I said, a substantial Muslim minority, um, I don't think there's, I, it's unclear if the, Singapore, the Singaporean government, Singapore runs, uh, you know, has elections, but runs a pretty, Tight is, is is pretty tight on trying to stop um, potentially divisive issues spiraling out of control. Mm. So it's been very strict on controlling displays of Israeli or Palestinian flags. Very strict on controlling protests. Um, someone I've talked to, someone I've talked to there said that public opinion has kind of moved against Israel just because of again sort of public. Um, horror, some of the images coming out of Gaza, a sense that Israel is failing to take into account uh, civilian lives in its campaign, and that uh, someone actually expressed relief that they, well, they were said they weren't entirely sure about the public reaction. They perhaps felt that the, some of the nuances were being missed um, because they were, so they, they were um, 
they had passed they were a former member of the mm. Singaporean government and Singapore has kind of a complex relationship with Israel but they expressed some relief they said even if I don't necessarily agree with the public reaction at least it hasn't become a religious issue so far so they were kind of relieved about that and then you know in I suppose the other real place to flag up is Thailand where a lot of Thai hostages were taken by Hamas. Um, there would be Thai migrant workers working in agriculture in Israel. A number of them were, some of them were killed or taken hostage um, in the October 7 attacks. And so that, um, I think that move, the public opinion was very, very focused on bringing them home. I think that it kind of meant, pushed a lot of public opinion in a, in a, in a direction more sympathetic to Israel as a result because um, because Thai citizens were affected by the attacks. But at the same time, Thailand has a substantial uh, Muslim minority, especially in the south, and so which is more um, sympathetic to Palestinians for, um, you know, in the way that Muslim publics often are. Actually, interestingly, this these people played a key... Um, Thai Muslims played a key role in helping secure the release of Thai hostages. Um, they had relation. They you they ah, sort of Thai Muslim negotiators were entered into negotiations with Hamas and um, Iran directly, and were able to use. There is a sense that they were able to use sort of a religious connection in order to sort of smooth negotiations over. They could pray alongside representatives for, from Iran and Hamas, for mm. example. Um, yet at the same time, there's um, public opinion has not necessarily always been terribly sympathetic to if these if uh, Thai Muslims have expressed a sense of solidarity with Palestinians um, because they see, it, they see this as, um, given, that, given that their own sympathies like more pro-Israeli due to the hostage taking. So there has been perhaps some divisions there, but from what I can tell, and I would really emphasize I'm not a specialist in Thailand, mm. I think that it's it has it's they've managed to avoid it becoming um a sort of a they've managed to sort of a, a avoid the divisions becoming too sharp at, um in a, in a in Thai politics. Um, at the moment, I think Thai politics is actually mainly absorbed by very complex party manoeuvring at the moment. Um, so yeah, has it been has it been tool of unity or division? I would. It's hard to tell. I would say that there has been a potential for division on the issue, which has. It, which I'd say has been avoided, There's, but it sort of lurks under the surface. There's been there is a show of unity on these things, but there is there is a, a perhaps a nervous sense of how the 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 issue could become a divide, could become divisive, and as a result, a slightly nervous um, attempt to avoid this happening, which has been interesting to observe. Well, of course, Joe, it is. I mean, again. It doesn't matter if the war it's uniting the countries in Southeast Asia or the war it's actually dividing the countries in Southeast Asia. But at the end of the day, we still need to have a clear message to the international community is war in the year of 
particularly in the year of 2024, shall never be the solution to any conflict. And the world, again, does not want to see more innocent lives. Again, just because the uh, international interest or we see the existence of the terrorist groups. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Joseph Rahman. Again, uh, Joe is a freelance journalist and covering Indonesia and other stories from around Southeast Asia. We strongly encourage everyone to go online, check out his latest article, which is entitled Gaza, It's a Burning Topic for Southeast Asia's Domestic Politics. Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for your time and your analysis. Help us with better understanding, particularly from the aspect of Southeast Asian countries. And we'd love to have you back on the show for future episodes. So thank you so much for doing this.